And so our sermon text this afternoon comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, looking at verses 67 to 80 and looking basically at the content of Zechariah's prophecy. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. And Father in heaven, we find in the scriptures that all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And Father, we pray that you indeed would give us hearts that are meek and ready to receive the scriptures for that which they truly are, the very words of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. I think um, we too easily forget that the New Testament church was born in the seedbed, as it were, of the Old Testament scriptures. That when Jesus had sent out the apostles into all the world, telling them to preach the gospel because all authority had been given unto himself, and they went out with scriptures buried, as it were, or hidden, as it were, in their heart. They went out with what we call the Old Testament When they were to preach the scriptures, they were preaching the Old Testament. They were preaching from, we would say, Genesis to Malachi. They found Jesus in every page. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, as the two people are walking on the road to Emmaus, we're told that Jesus taught them from the scriptures. All the things concerning himself, the Old Testament. The New Testament church was born preaching the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. It's interesting. You hear people say, I'm a New Testament believer. Well, that's really good. Do you honestly think the New Testament can be divided from the Old Testament as easily as that? You know, that blank page that usually appears in our Bible between Malachi and Matthew, do you think that's like a rigid wall and the things on either side of that blank page are um, completely unassociated from each other? Our greatest weakness, I think, as Christians is that we don't read enough Old Testament, we don't understand enough Old Testament and we don't carefully look in our New Testaments at all the references that are constantly drawn from the Old Testament. You know, all those little footnotes and, 
you know, whether you've got them in your, in, in, um, in a column down, down the centre of your page or whether they run down the side of your page or mine usually appear in a block at the bottom right-hand corner of every page, they're nearly always pointing you back to the Old Testament. How often in your um, regular Bible reading do you bother to go back and see where something came from? What was being referred to? Who was speaking? Why did he refer to that? Why does he find the fulfilment of that here? What does this mean? If um, you were sent out on the mission field and you were given an Old Testament, could you go and do your job? Could you, from the pages of the Old Testament, point to the Lord Jesus who died for our sins upon the cross of Calvary and was raised on the third day? Could you manage that one? Does that sound hard or unfair? Remember, and I'm not saying that the church grew rapidly because it was preaching from the Old Testament, but just remember, the church grew incredibly quickly in the first days of what you would call the life of the New Testament church, and it grew incredibly quickly preaching the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, obviously, this is in the providence and it's the will of God. God desired to grow the church very quickly. God desired to spread the church throughout the world. It was God's will that there be a gospel harvest almost immediately and that that gospel harvest would be large, a massive influx of souls into the body of Christ. Obviously, this is the will of God. But all of those sermons, they were preaching from the Old Testament. Peter's first sermon was filled with Old Testament references. And we come now to Zechariah and the prophecy of Zechariah. And all Zechariah has done in a manner of speaking, and I'm not trying to belittle it, he was obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit in doing this. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's one of the last Old Testament prophets. But what he's done is he's drawn together references from the Old Testament. He's drawn together a whole lot of them. I'm not going to even try and look at all of them tonight. But he's um, basically combed through the Old Testament to talk about what was happening at this moment. Remember the situation. He's been given a son by miraculous intervention. He's the father of John the Baptist. Elizabeth was barren, but in her old age, she was granted fertility and she conceived the child. That child was born. His name was John the Baptist. Zechariah himself had been struck dumb during the course of the pregnancy. He got his speech and his hearing back when John the Baptist was named. And the first thing he does is he praises God. He preaches the gospel. He explains what's happening through referencing and more or less explaining Old Testament scriptures. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel at verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's important. Why is he referred to David? What's important about that? Well, let's, let's sort of trace this back a bit. We'll, we'll work backwards towards where I want to get us. Go back to Psalm 132. We'll read the first five verses and then we're going to drop down. 
Verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favour, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, think about the reference. We actually read it in this morning's service. We read it in, I think, First Chronicles chapter 17 this morning. I'm going to turn us to Second Samuel chapter 7, where we find pretty much exactly the same um, event recorded. What's the reference? David had thought, I've got a house of cedar. The Ark of the Covenant of God is underneath a tent. It must be time to build a house for the covenant, for the Ark of the Covenant of God, a house for the Lord, a dwelling place for God. And what was he told? No, you will not. Not for you to build a dwelling place for God. Yet David has said, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for God, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Can I ask you a question? Think about this. What's the dwelling place of God today? The Ark of the Covenant was a copy of something. The Ark of the Covenant was a pointer to something. I'm not saying it's not a real thing. It was a real thing. And it had all of the holiness that God attached to it. But in the end, nobody was saved by the Ark of the Covenant. What was it pointing to? What's the dwelling place of God today? And here we sit, don't we? You and I, the people who are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, And what do we know from the Holy Scriptures? We know that he is here in the midst of us. We know that he indwells each one of his people and that he indwells his church. And what was the Lord Jesus called? What does the Scripture want us to know about Jesus? Jesus was the son of David. Now, David, through his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was used by God to bring into being a dwelling place for God. The church, the heart of the believer, God has taken up residence in his people. A dwelling place for God, staying in Psalm 132. Move down to verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. A son of David. A son of David. Sitting upon a throne forever. Priests clothed with salvation, saints shouting for joy in the place of salvation. Verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. 
Look at what Zechariah sung at verse 69 of Luke chapter 1. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Zechariah's excitement, if you want to put it that way, was this. His son, John, was going to proclaim the coming of the son of David in whom the promises would be fulfilled. Turn back to Second Samuel. We're familiar with the story. As I said, we read it in First um, Chronicles 17 this morning. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. We'll pick it up at Second Samuel, Samuel, Second Samuel 7, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my But of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David, a son of David with a throne that lasts forever, a son of David with a kingdom that will be established forever. It will be made sure forever. A son of David at verse 13, who shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Ark of the Covenant, it was surely a wonderful thing. Holy. People were not to go into the presence of it apart from um, the high priests with elaborate sacrifices and holiness rituals set in place lest he die. And it pointed to this, to this. You know, you and I, do you ever consider just how incredibly insignificant we are? Do you ever consider how it is that we feel like we're lower than worms and less than nothing? Well, in a way, we are. In a way, you know, we're not the great and mighty. You know, if if any of us gets hit by the proverbial bus this afternoon, it won't make the news. You know, it won't change the course of world history. Government policies won't change or anything like that. Yet, we're the dwelling place of the living God. 
where the temple wherein you find the name of the Lord enthroned forever? Where the people who are the fulfilment of this prophecy that God gave to King David? The son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified. He suffered stripes from the sons of men. In Isaiah 53, isn't there a line there? Something about by his stripes we are healed. We're the dwelling place of the living God, my friends. Not just our little church. Any little church where the gospel is proclaimed or any larger church where the gospel is proclaimed. Anywhere where the believers gather, anywhere where those who are in Christ gather one with another. Where two or three are, there I am in the midst of them. You see what Zechariah is singing about? You see his excitement? That his son would be one who proclaims this gospel? That his son would proclaim the coming of the son of David? And not just any son of David, but the son of David. The one to whom all the prophecies pointed and the one in whom all the promises were to be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading Zechariah's song back in Luke chapter 1. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. At verse 70 I am, now verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We've already read it, but let's look once more. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. And drop immediately down to verse 16. As I've said, we've read the context already, so we can go straight, as it were, to the meat of it. Genesis 22, verse 16. An angel of the Lord called to Abram, I'm reading verse 15, a second time from heaven, and the angel of the Lord, sorry, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. He's sworn, he's promised, he's committed himself. By myself I have sworn. This is what Zechariah is singing about. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed Because you have obeyed my voice. You see what Zechariah is preaching, what he's applying, what he's drawing from? He's drawing from the promises God gave to Abraham. And he's saying, this arrival of the Saviour, this arrival of the son of David, this is what God promised Abraham. God promised to Abraham that the offspring of Abraham shall possess the gate of his enemies. Take over all the world, in other words, blown out to its fullest meaning. Take over all the world. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This salvation promised through Abraham, it's going out into all the world. All the world. Here you and I are. 
Some of us might be able to trace some kind of Jewish heritage in our family trees, but in the end, we know we weren't born Jews. We were born Gentiles in a far-off land from the nation of Israel. Yet the gospel has gone out into all the world and people like you and I have been called into the kingdom to worship God through Jesus Christ, his son, who is also the son of David. And even though he's the son of David, the Lord says to my Lord, says David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He might be David's son in terms of his descent in human terms, but he's also David's Lord. He's also David's Lord. The God, the saving God whom David worships. And so I point out once more. Our New Testaments, they start with the book of Matthew. And what does Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 tell us about Jesus Christ? It tells us that he's the son of David and that he's the son of Abraham. And that, my friends, is gospel. That's gospel promise being fulfilled. This is the salvation that God has promised throughout the ages. Turning back into Luke chapter 1. At verse 76, Zechariah now speaks of his own son, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. It's a reference to Malachi chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, last book in your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The promises given by the prophets that salvation would come, that the Lord himself would visit his people, that the Lord himself would enter his temple. And I know. People reading this in the day, many of them would not have seen what the fulfilment was. They were imagining a fulfilment like the days of Solomon, when Solomon made sacrifices and offerings in the temple and a cloud so thick that people could not enter the temple descended over the sacrifices, over the altar. That's what they're imagining. But we know from our New Testament now how this was actually fulfilled. The Lord Jesus himself came to the temple and he said, this temple will be torn down. Not one brick will be left upon another. But then he said concerning himself, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. In Christ, we are in the temple of the living God. And so even the temple on the mountain in Jerusalem was something that pointed to something else. It was truly a holy place. It was definitely, according to that which had been taught, a holy place. It was a place of the presence of God. And yet, it pointed to more. It was subservient to the revelation of God that we get through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the temple raised on the third day. Behold, I send my messenger before you. Zechariah He's so joyful. He rejoices that his son is a prophet 
who will go before the Lord Jesus. Verse 77, give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Here's what he understands. Here's what people always have to understand. Any true salvation comes from dealing with the subject of sin. It comes from dealing with the trouble that comes to us due to sin. If there were no sin, there would be no need of salvation. It's as simple as that. To give the knowledge of to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Where would Zechariah have lifted that one? Where would, what would he, what might he be referring to there? Well, you could think of some psalms about the forgiveness of sins, but there's a specific prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we pick up our reading there at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Zechariah, old covenant priest, member of the priesthood. Remember, he got the news that his heretofore barren wife would conceive. He got that news at the altar in the temple whilst he was offering up incense and making intercession for his people. You can't get much more old covenant than that. And what's he singing about? The coming of new covenant forgiveness. Forgiveness based on the salvation of sin, salvation from sin. The salvation that comes when God cleanses people of their sins, when he puts his law in their hearts, when he takes out that dead heart of stone, when he gives them a heart that lives before him. In the book of Ezekiel, it's called the heart of flesh. Stone taken out, flesh put in. People born again, people made regenerate, people receiving life from God by the power of his Holy Spirit. Zechariah found it. In his Old Testament, by the way. Let's keep reading. Verse 78 of Luke chapter 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give life, light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 79. What's the reference? Well, we need to go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and reading at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them... Light has shone. 
On them light has shone. Zechariah finds the fulfilment of all of the promises of God to be coming by means of this one who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and his son will be that saviour's prophet. And so he weaves together. And there are other Old Testament references. I've sort of, I've moved fairly quickly through here. You know, if you've got a reference Bible at this point, the references should be pasted in there thick and fast, pointing you to various verses in the Old Testament scriptures. Our faith is an historic faith. What do I mean? Do I mean it's in the past? No, it's alive now. The church is alive now. The gospel is here now. The gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit even now. But that which we believe is built upon that which God has revealed in and throughout history. The things that are recorded for us in Scripture are things upon which God has um, revealed, are things through which God has revealed to us Himself, and are things which are true. True. You know, real truth, true truth. When you look at the nation around about us and you look at the madness of the nation around about us and look at how people seem willing to accept lie after lie after lie. And I've, I've noticed online in, in some of the, you know, the social media feeds, people say, when will, when will Australians wake up? When will they stop believing the lies? When will they remember that they've been lied to? When will they realise that these people lie every day and change what is the supposed truth every day? Well, only, only when God by his mercy opens their eyes and they accept that all truth comes from God and all truth is according to God's revealed word and the only judge by which or the only measure by which we can understand the truth is according to God's word. Then they'll care about whether or not they're being lied to. You know, as far as... um, It seems most Australians are concerned there's only one true statement. And that true statement is that there's no absolute truth. And it's self-cancelling. It's circular. You realise when you say there's no absolute truth, you've made an absolute truth statement. You might be able to see it. I can certainly see it. But they don't see it. It's a self-cancelling circular argument and upon that self-cancelling circular argument, they're trying to build their lives. There is no absolute truth. So when someone comes along and says the scriptures are the word of God, God's law is right, you must repent of your sins. They say there's no absolute truth. What are you talking about? There's no right or wrong. It's all situational. It's all according to the culture in which you're raised. It's all according to the circumstances in which you live. There's nothing to worry about. It's funny how people always say that until something bad happens to them. (laughs) And then suddenly they want to know why it was that bad things happened to me. Why it was that someone sinned against me. There's no absolute truth. You stole my wallet. You shouldn't steal. Hang on, did you just say you shouldn't steal and would that be an absolute truth? You killed my loved one and you shouldn't murder. Same again. Didn't you just speak an absolute truth when you said thou shalt not murder? 
You told me a lie and you should speak the truth, but you said there's no absolute truth. I mean, the scripture says you shall not bear false witness. And Australians, in their blindness, under this strong delusion that has descended upon our nation because as a people we've committed apostasy and turned from the light of the gospel, they don't want to know about absolute truth. They don't want to know about right and wrong. They don't want to know about the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. They don't want to know about the holiness of God. They don't want to know what it is that God desires of them. Leave me alone. Let me have my fun. Leave me to the things that I want. Let me enjoy myself. Well, my friends, what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is going to be a movement of the Spirit of God. But understand something. These things happen when Christians obey. I'm not saying they must and I'm not saying I can give you a timetable. But the way that God generally grows the church is that the church preaches the gospel and prays the gospel. The way that God generally grows the church is that the church in obedience does the things that it's been commanded to do. And in that way, God brings people into the kingdom. We've got to proclaim the absolute truth to a world that doesn't want to hear the absolute truth. There's one king, one Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. He rules and he reigns. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And in him alone, there is salvation. Our only hope is that we submit to him, to his righteous commandments. We've got to learn to love the Lord our God and we've got to learn to love our neighbour as ourselves. And by the way, loving your neighbour as yourself, it's defined by God's law. What does it look like? It looks like speaking the truth and loving the Lord your God and him alone. It looks like not committing adultery. It looks like not stealing. It looks like not committing idolatry. It looks like not telling lies. It looks like not being jealous but being contented. That's what loving your neighbour looks like. That's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans. Godly love is always lawful love. It's a fulfilment of the law. And all these things are absolute truths that the, that the world and our nation have said, no, don't want to know, don't care, not interested. They reject the law of God and what do they get? The law of man. Jesus was able to sum up the law of God in two sentences. Remember? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That was one. And then, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Two sentences. What about the laws that we've got, having rejected the law of God? How many laws does our nation have? And do they ever stop? <laughs> does it ever stop? Volume upon volume upon volume. Not far from where I work, there's, um, they're building a, an extension to the National Library of Australia. An annex, somewhere to store more volumes of law. Volume upon volume upon volume. Rules, revisions of rules, sub-rules, ordinances, you name them. People would rather 
people would rather be enslaved to government than be servants of God. People would rather call government God than the living God God. Because those who are in government say bread and circuses, sin as you please, just do as we tell you. Sad. It's a sad, sad state that our nation is in, my friends, and we should be mourning. It should be causing us grief. And we can rail and we can talk about government overreach and the power of government and we can talk about these things and we can get angry about these things and about the number of rules and regulations and laws and the way they're being thrown upon us and how they're being unevenly applied, etc., etc., etc. We can get annoyed with all of those things and yet here's the truth. Nothing will change until Australia repents. Nothing will change until Australia repents. Nothing will change. The nature of our society will not change. The nature of our cities will not change. The nature of our government will not change. If you wonder if at the moment whether or not our government is being controlled, as it were, by the devil and his minions, well, I wonder exactly the same thing. I remember in 1 John that that the Apostle John tells us that all the world is under the control of the evil one. And I think there he's speaking of the world, as it were, as a political thing, a gathering of people expressing their will. All the world is under the control of the evil one. Would that be where our government is at the moment? It seems to be. It seems to be. We seem to be being ruled by people who look at the general population in exactly the same way that a farmer looks at steers on a feedlot. They're walking products. There's inputs and there's outputs. And when the time comes, we move them on and we get the next lot. And that seems to be the way we're being governed. And as long as men bury their heads in the sand, lest they look upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, things will remain that way, my friends. We won't change this nation. We won't change this nation through voting. We won't. Getting enough people in this nation to vote wisely, first of all, requires that enough people in this nation be made wise enough to vote wisely. And that won't happen apart from repentance. It won't happen apart from the preaching of the gospel. It won't happen apart from taking the Holy Scriptures and applying them to, first of all, our own lives and then to the lives of those around us, preaching the gospel, sharing the truth, proclaiming the truth because it is the truth. Understand every time we proclaim, God, the Holy Spirit, is there with us. God is there with us. Even if people reject that which is true, if they harden their consciences and turn away, yet God is being glorified in the proclamation of the truth. And God promises that he is merciful. Merciful. Willing to forgive. My friends, don't be ashamed of proclaiming the word of God. Don't be ashamed of the scriptures. Don't be ashamed of the truth found therein. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If you want to know where the hope for our nation is, it's here. It's in the scriptures. It's in the people of God. It's in the church. It's in the proclamation of the gospel. And that's the only hope. That's the only hope. All the other good things that we would like to see 
godly rulers, wise societies, people who vote with an eye for the future. The freedoms that we wish we had and seem to be being taken away day by day by day. Well, it makes me angry and I want to fight and I want to protest and here's what I understand. My anger and my fighting and my protesting make no difference. In the end, all that will make a difference is God granting repentance to this nation. It's God opening the eyes of the people of this nation. Good government in human terms, good government in human terms is down the road from faith and repentance in societal terms. Why do we have at this moment, I'll call it bad government, because at this moment we have bad society. At this moment, we're a nation given over to sin and slavery to sin. And those who rule know how to play the game. They know how to play along with it. They know how to twist and to turn it to their own desires. You want good government? Where does it start? It starts with people who have had their eyes opened through faith and repentance. It starts with people who understand where the truth is to be found. It's to be found in the word of God. It starts with people who are judging their own actions according to the commandments of God. And then downstream from there, then you get good government. You get wise governors. You get people who vote the right people in. So my friends, want to change the nation? Want to change the way things are? Continue in faithful obedience to the gospel. Continue in the proclamation of the Holy Scriptures. Continue in prayer. Continue to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel was in Babylon, yet Daniel was praying for Jerusalem. Daniel himself was not responsible for the sins that had put his people in Babylon, yet Daniel was confessing and repenting of the sins of his nation in that they followed after idols. Take responsibility for our nation. We have sinned. We have sinned. We who call ourselves Australians have turned our back upon the living God. We have rejected that which we knew to be true in favour of lies. Because in believing the lies, we found justification for our wicked desires. And what we see now is the fruit of it. What we see now is the end of it. What we see now is um, God, as it were, bringing down judgment upon our nation. Well, I say again, he is a merciful God. As long as the gospel is preached, there is hope. As long as the gospel is preached, there is hope. As long as the worshippers of the living God have the word of God upon their lips, there is hope. So, my friends, let's remember we're the servants of the living God, that the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all things and that we indeed have the necessary weapons to attack this world, to attack the wickedness of the world. Faith and prayer and love in the Lord We have the word of God. We have the wisdom that comes from God. 
we have every reason to hope. Do not be discouraged. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you that the scriptures bring us the truth about yourself and about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do indeed thank you that you have made us your own through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Father, we pray for our nation. We pray, Father, that you would grant repentance here in Australia. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of the people, that they would see that what they are calling freedom is nothing but slavery to the world, that, that, um, that they have turned their backs upon the truth and that they must repent. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.